Interesting episode of the Midwest Monsters Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I'm joined by my giggly co-hosts, Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Benny, Hot Toddy. Good to be with you again, dear listeners. And we are coming back with another installment of the Monster Mash. You know how it works. We all pick a movie that wouldn't normally fit inside of a genre or any other category, and we just make each other watch it. And I am Grizzly Abner, and I chose Cursed. <laughs> uh, Professor Wagstaff here. I picked Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 78 remake. Then it was Vinny here. I picked Scream, Blackula, Scream. And Hot Toddy, I picked Unhinged. Okay, very good. Well, we have decided to go in chronological order. So we'll be good. We'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> Bagul? I want to say Bagul we'll, here. We'll be beginning. <laughs> 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 Lion face. Ah, lemon face. Ooh. We'll be beginning with Vinny's pick. Can you sing the birthday song did for we, me? Uh, did we do intros? <laughs> <laughs> we'll be starting with Vinny's pick, which is Scream, Blackula, Scream. Toddy, hit us with them dates and details. Play off. I thought we talked about saying the title before sending it to me, but that's okay. <laughs> Scream, Blackula, Scream, 1973, uh, directed by Bob Kellegen and starring William Marshall, Pam Greer, Don Mitchell. This is the sequel to Blackula. What? Yes. Okay. This, let me hit the synopsis first before I give anything else. So, there is a voodoo clan, if you will. Mm -hmm. The leader has passed away, and the position has been given to Lisa, played by Pam Greer. Oh, yeah. So, if this don't give you an idea of what you're starting to get into. So, Lisa gets this position. And her son throw a pit. The, the, uh, yes, and Willis, <laughs> what you talking about? <laughs> believes that he should have gotten the position, and he mad as hell about it. So he goes home and does voodoo mm -hmm. to bring back the cursed Prince Mumawaldi, also known as Blackula. I'm glad you said that name and not me. <laughs> to come back <laughs> and get vengeance on these people, but when Mumawaldi comes back. <laughs> and sees the power that Lisa has, he starts to work with her to cure himself of the curse of vampirism through her voodoo. I uh, Similar story, except I was trying to cure my gayness through voodoo, and it didn't work. 
<laughs> I heard that Mike Pence was the one, and that was not voodoo. <laughs> Did you, in preparation for this, like go to Google and have him pronounce that for you? Like what? you say that with the utmost confidence. What, Mama Waldy? Yeah. It's like <laughs> your wait- safe word. <laughs> I keep waiting on your voice. <laughs> I keep waiting on your voice to drop an octave so you can be, ah, uh, I'm Mama Waldy. I'm Mama Waldy. So, I, do you guys, have any of you guys seen this before? Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, I'd seen it before. Okay. Just the cool people. This is this is one of those situations that are rare in that I believe the sequel is better than the original. I think that this sequel is I don't know that I can fantastic. argue that. And Blackula Because I like Blackula though. Oh, I do too. But yeah, I, I can't I, I can't, like them both. I do think two has some stuff that it's make a, it better. I think it's a superior film. And Blackula is imposing a F in this movie. Yeah. Uh, like with a lot of movies from that era, especially in, within exploitation, the reviews are really all over the place. I think by and large, this got trashed. I saw uh, one that, that rated this one of the worst black exploitation movies ever made, which kind of blew my mind because I've what? watched a lot and I can tell you this is nowhere near one of the worst ever no, made. No, number one, the production value itself. Well, a perfect example of the disparity between people's viewpoints on, on this movie was uh, Siskel and Ebert. Ebert trashed it. Well, Siskel loved it. Huh. He gave it, I think, three and a half out of four stars. Said that it was far superior and more entertaining. And I agree completely. I think well, for starters, I mean, full disclosure, I have a complete mark for Pam Greer. I've seen pretty much every movie she ever made. That's where I watched this originally. I, I think I went out of my way to watch this before I even did the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also like it for Richard Lawson playing Willis. It's his first role. He goes on to be in like Poltergeist and a number of other movies, uh, some pretty legitimate productions. And I think those supporting characters add a lot to this movie because William Marshall is a class act every time. Oh yeah. He's always dialed in. It doesn't matter what the material is. He's a consummate He adds a certain gravitas to the movie. But without the character supporting cast, it can get a little long in the tooth. Mm. I'm not trying to be funny. Um, But I think those two specifically really add a lot to this movie. I think it moves a lot swifter and is more entertaining than the first one. I think there's a lot of great horror shots in this. Yes. That scene where Blackula is floating Mm -hmm. and he's got his hands above his head, that is terrifying. Yeah. I agree. I want to hear some other people talk. Not just me. Please go ahead. Um, He didn't watch it. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually just trying to find it on YouTube right now. (laughs) He's watching it in uh, three times the speed. Three times the speed, trying to catch up real quick. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, I saw that review too, and the only thing that I can say is it really—it's um, not even in par with a lot of. I, uh, it's it's a black exploitation film, but the acting and other things of the like production quality, like I mean, it's hard to even put it in there. Other than the again, the after watching that documentary, something that I might not have thought of, but it is a. Um, uh, most of the actors are African American, and the story centers around, and it centers around voodoo. So I guess that is definitely one of the tropes of um, of black horror. So um, I don't know. I I think it's inventive of um, especially how they bring him back because it and they could have easily phoned in the first movie and just did it again. 
Um, We've all seen Dracula come back where he's a skeleton and somehow a drop of blood hits him and he's completely generated. So I thought it was kind of a neat, different way to take it to to bring the vampire back. And to tie in culturally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and then uh, then, uh, the whole added element, too, is uh, because you would think that now Pam Greer looks like his lost love. And it's not. It's that she is has powers that she's not even aware of, and he is wanting to break his curse um, of evil. But I also kind of like, I don't know, Willis is kind of one of my favorite characters in the movie, (laughs) Um, especially when he's kind of like running his mouth about Blackula and Blackula stands behind him. (laughs) Um, But the the girl's kind of like trying to sell him out because as soon as he sees he's he's in the room, he's changing shit, and she's like, "Uh uh-uh. Like, he, no. (laughs) I like to the freak out over the beer, which especially in the 70s and all about fashion and your appearance, a man's got to see himself in the mirror. (laughs) Which gives us... The great tie-in later in what we do in the shadows with them taking, like, drawing what they look like with their clothes on, <laughs> trying to like because they're trying to look good and they're going out, you know, and they can't see themselves. <clears throat> um, I think I was entertained by this more than the first one. I found that to be, uh, yeah, true. <laughs> um, I like the voodoo tie-in. You guys know I'm a mark for voodoo stuff, so it was nice that it had that along with it. And, I mean, William Marshall just always commands the screen when he's on there. So I like watching him work. I may not be a huge fan of the movies, but I just like watching him act. He's such a I feel like actor. he has that imposing quality that Christopher <clears throat> Lee had as Dracula. Yes. Yeah. Stoic. Yeah. I just realized, is this, uh, is this two... Spoiler alert. Is this two picks like in a William row? William Marshall is Dracula better than Christopher Lee. <laughs> As you're, oh, burn it down, as, uh, as he's talking about, as he's talking about this, I'm like, is this the second or third pick in a row of Dracula that you've done since the Dracula episode? So he just said, <laughs> he's, Dracula, he's Black not Black crazy about these movies. And he just said that, and then he said that it's he prefers it over Christopher Lee. So listeners, take with that. <laughs> exactly. It's no I, secret he's no fan of Dracula. No. There's a couple things. That- Sad. Goth operas. <laughs> I like the part where uh, Blackula finally has to let Willis know who's daddy. <laughs> he starts popping off. He's like, you will. And it's like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. You are in trouble. Yeah, I love that part. And I like the part where the two guys are trying to rob Blackula in the street. <laughs> oh, the pimps. And, and, he, and he's like, look, don't, you guys don't want to fuck with me. <laughs> and then they stab him. And instantaneously, he's that fucking monster face. Like I love that that there's no transformation. He just instantly is that evil, hairy-looking vampire and fucks their worlds up. It's one of my favorite scenes. Oh, it was great. Yeah, I also like too, like because he maintains being Lord Mumawaldi. You know what I'm saying? Like he shows up to this party and they they're showing they've got these African artifacts. And he's like, well, actually, yeah, he's they them straight. are from this kingdom and this dynasty. And it's like, because he maintains just that royal air that he that is his. You know what I mean? That's what and, made him a great king of cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> Be a great band name. King of cartoons? No. Mumbaldi. Mumbaldi. Yeah. Didn't they sing Tub Thumping or something? Oh, no. <laughs> Oh no! Oh uh, boy! Wesley Willis did have a song called "Scream Back Black Scream." Mm. 
I don't know. I, I enjoy the sequel a lot. I think it's a lot of fun. I think William Marshall's fantastic in this movie. And he's... I almost find him more sympathetic in this one than I did in the first one. Yeah. And I, you also get an enthusiastic performance from Pam Greer, uh, kind of stepping outside of the stuff she did with Jack Hill and really kind of coming into her own. And I think this is a great early role for her. And she's a knockout as always. I think, uh, I think actually when people talk about Blackula, that most of them have seen this movie because they, because they'll mention Pam Greer. So I think they think of Blackula as, as this movie. I'll say this now. This will be my last vampire pick for some time. Oh, praise the Lord. My turn. I'm out. (laughs) I've wanted to pick this one for a while and I couldn't stand it anymore because I knew it was readily available on one of the free streaming services that Grizzly still had. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was recently robbed in the front. So, yeah. (laughs) Got to watch those finances. (laughs) Good times. All right. I would recommend it to anybody interested in that moment of film history. Absolutely. It's it's not necessarily just going to be a home run for. Everybody, no. but if you have an interest, it's it's a rewarding watch. But it's produced watch. well. Yeah. Todd, without me saying the next pick, what is? Can you do that? He our next film. <laughs> That's the only reason. <laughs> Invasion of the Body Snatchers, nineteen seventy eight, directed by Philip Philip Kaufman. Am I reading right here? Mm-hmm. Uh, who who also is a. Uh, Wrote and directed The Right Stuff and Raider. He wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark and some other cool stuff. Starring Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Jeff Goldblum, Kevin, uh, or sorry, skipping the line, Veronica Cartwright, Leonard Nimoy, Art Hendel, and then uh, special appearances by Kevin McCarthy, Robert Duvall, and Don Siegel, the original uh, director. With Leonard Nimoy <laughs> kicking up the jam. He's he's been sitting on that. Um, yeah. I like it. Um, so <laughs> it's uh, it's tough to was bounce back from that. Of, uh, but anyways, we get knocked down, but we was, get up again. Um, you're never going to keep us down. What was uh, so, Boggy Creek? Just keep going with this shit show. Anybody seen this uh, before this recording? Yes. Oh for yeah. This? Uh, yes, one time. Okay, cool. So uh, I guess Thanks, we don't need to re-run. talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> no. So we've uh, constantly talked about remakes and some of the highlights of those. And this has always been one that I brought up. Um, I love the original, but I thought this would be a cool entry point for this story. Um, and so that's why I picked it. Um, it's, there's been, there's one in the nineties as well as the original from the fifties. Um, that I, those three specifically, I really enjoy. Uh, so the basic idea of it and it's been, kind of used in other films like Halloween three, for instance, uh, pulls a ton from this. Mm-hmm. Um, but the general concept of it is we <clears> open <throat> the movie with, uh, some kind of maybe plant life or alien creatures where we're coming down to earth <laughs> space jizz Me- yeah. meteor shit. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it, we go all the way down through the clouds, planet earth and land next to the golden gate bridge. Uh, we then spend time, uh, with everyday life in San Francisco, but we also show that immediately something is growing out of the plants where it's landed. Um, and so it's kind of the, the classic concept of uh, within a city, things just kind of starting to be a little bit weird and notice, but it's not really full blown yet. And so I think they do a really nice job of setting that up, um, which the main thing that really gets that going 
is there is a woman that works at the health department and she brings home a plant that she noticed and puts it next to uh, the bedside there and goes to sleep along with her boyfriend, Art Hendel, who uh, listeners might know from Black Christmas or The Brood. Um, made a string of really good movies around there in the 70s. Uh, but she, in the morning, she wakes up to him already dressed, cleaning up what appears to have been broken glass from that on the side, and he is weird as shit. He's not acting like himself. Uh, we catch up with her colleague, Donald Sutherland. Um, the character's name is escaping me at the moment, Matthew. Uh, and he is at a uh, dry cleaner. And one of the owners is complaining about his wife being completely different. That not my wife. Yeah. And so you just, <laughs> I, love, I love a matter of fact he is. Uh, are you a doctor? That not my wife. <laughs> yeah. And so another uh, early weird occurrence that I always think of this movie for is Robert Duvall in the swing set. <laughs> this guy who'd already been in To Kill a Mockingbird, The Godfather, and he's just in it for 30 seconds. <laughs> like a weirdo swinging on the swing, staring at the camera, just little things like that. And they, and they really don't hit you over the head with it. It's he was just, a priest, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so there's just all these little occurrences that you're starting to put together. And, um, they try and explain it away. They go to meet with an author played by Leonard Nimoy, who's a psychologist. And he's talking to them about coping mechanisms and marriages that are falling apart. And they're trying to explain it away with very human ideas but it's, there's too many coincidences happening, and mm-hmm. they start putting that together. And so basically what it is that we learn through a series of fairly creepy events is that um, the plant life are, are aliens that are duplicating humans when they fall asleep. And they're quickly doing it. And when they do that, the original human that they duplicated, duplicated disintegrates. And so then you have this air of who's walking around. Once they realize what's happening, because at one point, uh, Brooke Adams character, Elizabeth, right? Yeah. Elizabeth, he, uh, comes and checks on her. Matthew does, and she's fallen asleep and there's already a second version of her out, like in their, uh, greenhouse, whatever you want to call it, little area already duplicating her. Mm-hmm. And he wakes her up in time that disintegrates by the time they get the cops there, but they, they slowly put together what's occurring with that. Um, and, as you'd expect, it just keeps growing in scale. We then uncover uh, pods that are being dispersed to take to other cities and eventually wipe out humans so that they can take over the planet because wherever they came from, they could not inhabit anymore. Um, so before we go any further, thoughts, favorite scenes? I like <clears throat> that this movie manages to keep you with such a outrageous subject matter. It keeps you very grounded in the real world. I think part of that that helps is that it is the seventies and the kind of film stock that they use and the way things were shot. I think the time period assists in that very well because the more uh, uh, outlandish aspects of it are played down a lot mm-hmm. like they don't give you a lot of it so it still keeps and, and they're also toying with you as well as as the female lead is she nuts because Leonard Nimoy's character is basically there to keep gaslighting her you know that look you, you just need to call listen to yourself you sound ridiculous you yeah. know so I think they do a very good job of that and and all 
even though you've seen some of the stuff, then I think you as a viewer are even meant to, to start to be like, well, is she just hallucinating this stuff or blah, blah. So I really like that end of it because I don't want to talk about the original at length or anything like that, but just to kind of refer back to it, it's definitely got more of that atomic age cinema feel to it. And this, this is much more of a, they turn it more into a thriller, I guess, yeah. than, than, than the original. And I want to build upon that. So the original was was kind of a propaganda film against communism. Yeah. And watching this one, this time around, I was really trying to figure out, like, what is the message of this movie? Like, what is it trying to warn against? And so to be completely honest, I've only seen this once before, and I didn't enjoy it that much because I thought it was just a little too tame. Watching it this time around, I realized that's actually the magic of this version, is that it is very muted. Mm -hmm. It is very uh, non-excitable. Exactly, right, because the gaslighting, the you're crazy, you know, this sort of thing that's going on. And this time around, that's what makes it, a for me, what made it a brilliant film. First time around, thought it was too boring. This time around, really appreciated it because of those things Mm -hmm. that didn't appeal to me at first. And so, yeah, I, I just like the, the subdued uh, uh, feel of the movie because that adds, as you said, it's haunting. It adds to the creepiness of what's and going on. And made it on. not feel like a big sci-fi production. Exactly. Exactly. And as we get into talking about actually watching these things grow, they didn't spare anything on making that look really good. So yeah. it was a big sci-fi production that didn't feel that didn't like feel a big like sci-fi one. production. Yeah. So I really appreciated the film this time around. So awesome. thank you, Professor, My for choosing it. Yeah, it really, I, I, don't, like I don't recall it. you thanking me for Black Screen. <laughs> screen. You want to go back? <laughs> uh, check with me later. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, because I thought I, I just kind of felt like a dummy. I was like, man, everybody likes this movie, but I didn't really dig it, you know. And now I'm like, ah, I do appreciate this film. Yeah, sometimes you just got to be in the mood for it too. Yeah. It, the I think one of the brilliant things about this also is it's firing on all cylinders. Every single element that they're they're tackling is top shelf. The score is perfect. There's it's, no and there's no wasted shot. Right. There's no wasted shot. So when the music needs to be melancholy, it is. When it's disorienting and loud and almost intrusive, that's there. The camera work always means something. Uh, a great segment in it is when they're showing the feet. They don't do stuff like that the whole movie that's gimmicky, but the point is seeing if people are catching on, if they're blending in. And so you're just panning back and forth watching these feet walking. It's just little moments like that really play on kind of the understated horror of it which i think is what makes it so smart is that pod people are scary because you can't tell yeah and so the fact that we tone it down a little bit and don't have people sprinting after each other all the time that makes it so creepy because it happens so quickly the flip you can't tell yeah and so i think that's that's why this movie's so smart because it leaves itself so much wiggle room uh to play with those things but at the same time it doesn't it doesn't go weak on the special effects or the payoff of some of that stuff. Toddy, any thoughts? Um, well, I definitely agree. Uh, so this is usually top of the list. Uh, I don't know about best remake ever, but it's definitely one of the best remakes. Um, 
I've kind of thought about these movies for a while, but this would be a weird franchise to do because we're just going to keep watching the same movie four times at least. Um, there's a reason, though, I'm almost expecting a remake to happen now because it seems like it's remade every couple decades or so because the last one was 2007 or uh, somewhere in there with Nicole Kidman and uh, Daniel Craig. And I think there's a reason this movie keeps coming back because I think this version does it best. Um, though I really like the nineties one too. I think the nineties the one, I think scared me a little bit more, I guess, but if I'm being honest, I think I saw, um, parts of this movie originally on TV. Cause I just remember the, um, my, like the massage parlor or bathhouse or wherever they're at. Um, I remember that scene and seeing the, um, <laughs> the thing open his eyes. That's for some reason, that's always the thing that was on TV. And I would, I didn't even know what movie it was. I would just change the channel. Um, but I think watching it now, even that, um, I think this one does it best because of the undertone of the film. And, and, uh, I think this one plays on paranoia really well. And honestly, I think as you get older, you can relate to this movie because there's people in your life that, and I think that we're going through it now. Like we're arguing over politics and vaccines and um, some of the arguments we're getting into and, um, you know, racism, this just stuff coming from people that you thought you knew really well. And you'll just see comments or, or actions or something from a friend that you just are like, man, I don't even know you. Is that a pod person? Exactly. Yeah. Who are you? Um, same thing with like where, you know, people almost become reserved for whatever reason, like maybe the life of the party or loudmouth is now like, you know, really quiet and, uh, to themselves or just, uh, I, I think everybody can relate to this that, you know, that even maybe your best friend growing up and you re reunite and it's just not the person you remember. So I think this is easily, uh, something that can, can play with that. And I think this is probably the best version that, that done it of, uh, uh, of this plus um kind of what ryan was saying so there's a couple things i i didn't pick up on that i should have but um i noticed that there is a lot of nature stuff and i guess that's i noticed that but as the film progresses like all the sounds of crickets and birds and stuff disappear and the end credits there's no music <laughs> which is creepy um it's very bleak so I, yeah, I just think there's things that as it progresses that there's things taken away that you may or may not notice. Um, so I don't know. Well done. And then the casting alone of uh, Leonard Nimoy, because I think the fact that he played Spock for so long that, you know, um, he's kind of a character that already isn't really, you know, usually Leonard Nimoy is not the emotional go-to guy, uh, because I think he kind of got pigeonholed as Spock. There's not many things that li you've watched Leonard Nimoy act in yeah. right, that he wasn't. And I thought he was perfect for that because just, just thinking of Spock alone, you're like, damn, that's a pod person. So the casting of him, because early on, I'm like, oh, it's a pod person. But then you're like, is it? Is it not? Well, I would argue the opposite. And that people trusted Spock so much <laughs> because he was such a beloved pop icon character oh, yeah. that you automatically – kind of view him as the, a good guy. The when voice of us. Whenever he smiles, I'm like, that's not Spock. <laughs> when I see Leonard Nimoy smile, it throws me off. But I think that they played, I think the way he was cast is you automatically kind of trust his character. That's true. Because he, you're used to trusting Spock. Well, he also comes in and, and, and he's like supposed to be the voice of reason. Yes. Yeah. 
So yeah, great casting. Jeff Goldblum also adds a nice boost. Yes, very um, good. He's very animated, as he would go on to be for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and to mention the two quick cameos also, we've got Kevin McCarthy, who is the lead from the original, yes. comes flying up onto the windshield, <laughs> freaking oh, yeah. out. It's a yeah. great cameo. Just like he was in the original. Um, and then we have the director of the original driving the cab, and Don Siegel. So I thought that was a fun nod that they nice. had them in there. Uh, but the bathhouse uh, sequence is great because they, they demonstrate where people are relaxing and falling asleep. And it's well lit in there so you can actually see the beginnings. And it's pretty damn creepy when yeah. we saw like the yeah. vegetation growing over him. And it's happening quick. And so much is learned there uh, from that sequence. But, um, you know, as you would expect, there's little things that we learn along the way. Uh, hiding your emotions. To, and trying to blend in uh, is helping with that, which you can make whatever you want of that. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as the shrill screaming when they spot someone. Which is terrifying. one of them. And I think that's such a creepy element of this movie because they don't spend a bunch of time doing it in your face. You'll hear it off in the background. And to think about like putting yourself in that situation, that that's how you're called out so that everyone around knows which, just so you know, that's oh, my do new you thing. Mean call when out culture. <laughs> yes, call out. That's how Todd identifies straights when he's out. That, that is what I'm going to start doing when conventions start again. Uh, so, is there anything else we want to hit on before I go to the end? I just wanted to say, real quick, um, building upon, as I kept trying to find meaning in this one to see if it's what the underlying social message was, like the first one you had. Kept trying to shoehorn your liberal agenda. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But. You raise a good point, the idea of the loss of emotion, right? Bottling things up, et cetera. Maybe it's a film about that. Maybe it's also, too, is it Nancy Cartwright? Is that her name? Yeah. Veronica. Veronica Cartwright. Uh, you know, she's talking, they're, they're trying to figure out, like, oh, that's these plants, and we'd never know because we, we can't smell it or we can't taste it because we never know because we eat junk and we breathe junk, right? It's like this idea, you know, for the time that this came out, they're starting to really, like, oh, man, food is not really food anymore. <laughs> and yeah. then, like... We're, we're starting to realize that we're polluting the sky. And so I thought that may have been part of the message as well. And then a line that's coming up that I don't want to spoil the ending with. I'll let you go and then we'll, we'll talk about that. Sure. Uh, so basically we build up to them, as I referenced earlier, them discovering that they're mass distributing these pods to get out to other cities to just run its course through like it's done in San Francisco where this movie's been set. Uh, and while there, our main character, uh, Elizabeth, falls asleep in a very haunting sequence where she uh, has flipped and her replacement pod is popped up completely nude uh, in the brush behind and is basically like a siren mm-hmm. uh, beckoning to Sutherland's character to that, you know, they weren't lying. It's not painful. Basically trying to get him to surrender to that. Oh, let me pause you really quickly. Sure. So before that is this line that I was thinking of when they, they do have Elizabeth and they do have Matthew and they're, uh, sedating them and uh matthew looks at his friend and he says david you're killing me and i thought about this line especially as we were talking about what it's like now to realize like we see the pod people in our lives like we see the people in our lives making these strange statements on social media that we did not expect them to do and it's like do you realize the weight of which your decisions are making right now you're killing me Right, I know that's a bit dramatic, but right, but it, it holds weight with the world we're living in. As a viewer right now watching it, it packs a punch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just for him to very calmly say to his friend, "You, you're, you know, you're killing me right now." Right. So, okay, yeah, she pops up naked. I love 
Uh, not that she's naked, but it's funny that she's chasing him. You don't mind it, though. She's, I love that she's chasing him, angry, angrily naked chasing him. Which, yeah. which I think is the first it's time, funny. too, that we see that the actual person, what happens to them. Because because we keep seeing the pods. Right. You know, the, right. we're waking the people up. You can't tell. So, because uh, I think a lot of films like this, too, the ending is like, well, and then everybody's okay. So, you, before the ending never gets here, you see what happens to the humans. The humans are gone. Because their their body is what shrivels up, and and I think also what like I mentioned earlier, the how subtle it is is why this ending is is so great mm-hmm. because you're sold on it. So basically, he's trying to flee from that whole operation. She's flipped. She's doing the scream. She's calling it out, and I'm pretty sure she's got armpit hair when she's <laughs> pointing, which I don't know is a reflection of her brand new version. Hmm. Um, or if that's just coincidental. Hey, man, women's liberation, buddy. They don't have to shave their armpits for you. <laughs> it was 78. They sold out by then. <laughs> so um, we we basically leave that ambiguous, and we go to the next day. Did you not see her penis? Yes. Uh, we go to the next day. <laughs> yeah, because Donald Sutherland's like hiding under a, a railroad trestle or something, right. isn't he? Yeah. And you're watching people what run over the top of him. And then kind of shine a light down where he's at as he hides in the shadows. Yeah. And so we go to the next day, and we've got Sutherland going through his motions. He's watching kids, the school bus, um, and everyday life. And as he's walking, and it's a great shot where he's walking up towards a building and all the trees are dead, just completely wiped out. And Veronica Cartwright, who still managed to stay okay, her character, uh, calls out to him because, you know, it's an ally. Right. And uh, he turns around, looks at her, and she's coming towards him to, to you know, share and whatever on what to do next. And he points and lets out the shrill scream. He's He's been flipped and rolled a silent credits. And real quick, fun story. Uh, I wore a shirt with that expression of <laughs> Sutherland when we met his son, Kiefer. And I didn't even think about it. I, I'm Honestly, it wasn't intentional, but he... He was a fan of the shirt when we came back for a picture. He's like, oh, my God. He loved the shirt that I was wearing there. But it's such a great ending. Thoughts on the ending? Do you remember the first time you watched it, what it was like? I was wearing, real quick, a a rush shirt of Jason Patrick doing cocaine when we met him, too. And (laughs) just kidding. Um, I was going to bring up, and I thought you I was like, bastard. But so the – because the original movie had two endings, and they did the cop-out one because they forced them to do – which they made, talked about with Halloween three, why they ended it the way. Well, they and did. and and this movie, it is scripted that she nods at him and he nods at her because they're both okay, and that's how everything was scripted. And only Sutherland, uh, the writer director, they're only three that knew. That's not how they were ending the movie because they didn't want studio interference. And I think it makes it awesome that um, Cartwright had no idea which this is the second movie they did that to her because on alien, she had no idea what to expect. And so her reaction is real and her reaction is real in this one because she had the script that she's like, we're okay. She had no idea that he was going to do the, the shriek. So, um, that's pretty cool. That freaks me the F out. And the, uh, the nineties one does it more in your face. It's just so odd. I think that it's just, I just think when you see stills of it, it looks so goofy, and it ain't goofy when it happens. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's jarring, for sure. Especially that first time you see it. And then the credits hit, and you're like, oh, 
Right. Oh shit. You're not you're not convinced that he's turned. Well, and, and I mean? we're not programmed to expect that kind of an ending. Yeah. Yeah, you you're supposed to walk away with some good feeling is what they give you all the time. And so yeah. then when it doesn't happen, that ain't no good. <laughs> you're like, yeah, hey, yeah, you're waiting to like see something else happen in the credits. I I'm want like, my money back. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, I recommend this to anyone. Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, uh, glad I watched it again. Enjoyed it this time around much better. Good times. Okay. What's next? Hot toddy. My pick is next that I will not say. <laughs> Cursed, two thousand and five, directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson, starring. <laughs> How much time you got, buddy? Christina Ritchie, Jesse Eisenberg, Joshua Jackson, Milo Ventimiglia, the cute guy from This Is Us, uh, Portia de Rossi, Maya, Michael Rosenbaum, Shannon Elizabeth, Nick Offerman, Judy Greer, Derek Mears as the werewolf, Scott Bayo before he was crazy. Uh, <laughs> And then I did make a quick note because I think this is probably the first time I saw this on video to begin with. So there's a PG-13 cut, which is the original theatrical cut, and then an unrated cut. But there's also three other versions that we'll probably never see because <laughs> uh, this movie took like four years to get put out. So good times. This is a favorite of my wife's. And my wife, I was going to say, gotta do it. <laughs> um, I had never seen it, but we searched forever to find the unrated cut. So you've got the theatrical cut; it's kind really of really out of print, a bluish hue, and then there's the 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 unrated that's red. And it's so funny because we were in Goodwill the other day, and she's like, "Look, there's Curse the Unrated Cut," and I was like, "We searched forever for that," <laughs> and then here it is at Goodwill. Um, so this is my second or third viewing. Um, I chose it because it's Wes Craven and we didn't really talk about it on the Wes Craven episode and it's a werewolf movie. We haven't talked about it on any werewolf stuff. Um, have any of you guys seen this before? This is probably my third viewing. Okay. Surprisingly, my dad's a fan of this. <laughs> I remember you telling me and I, in my heart of hearts, love that. I want to say maybe my second, because after I started watching it, I was like, oh, wait, no, I've seen this. But obviously it didn't make Which isn't surprising. Werewolves and Wes Craven, that it would cross our path at some point. Yeah, sure. I was trying to think, because I've seen it, but I kind of feel like this might have been my second viewing. You didn't see it in the theater? I didn't see it in the theater. I also didn't like this movie, and I stand by that. <laughs> um, I, I really, because honestly, I read about this movie for quite a while, and the other cast members that are not in the movie, like Robert Forrester, Scott Foley, Alina Douglas, Omar Epps, Heather Lingenkamp, James Brolin, Corey Feldman, Mandy Moore. I'm like, where are all of these people? Where's the three-hour cut of this film? Well, it's not even that it was a three-hour cut. They just messed with this movie so bad. Uh, like Rick Baker... Uh, I think he walked away from this movie, and then K and B filled in because oh, they, they're yeah, like, "Oh, the werewolf." On it, they cut it and replaced him with K and B. So this wow. movie was so neutered that I think that's why, like the original movie, um, this was this was like prime. This would have been coming out right at the end of Scream Three. So I mean, Kevin Williamson and, and Wes Craven, like they're hot off the tails of Scream, and uh, the Weinstein brothers were just like, nah, we'll just it's one of the most this movie. plague movies in recent memory. Wow. You, there's not a single person in this that likes it. 
they they say that the script that they signed up for didn't exist by the time this movie was done. That it was completely different. They that they, they all referenced the original script from Williamson as one of the best things they'd ever read. Interesting. And they just turned it into a kind of cheapo, yeah, CG werewolf movie. Well, and that's kind of what it is. Like I, I find this film to be entertaining, but of course not on the level. You At I mean? all for who's making it, who's writing it, who's in it. Yeah. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk about. So let's set it up here. <laughs> so we get this cold open at a boardwalk. Uh, bowling for Soup is playing on stage. <laughs> Always a great start. <laughs> and, and Portia de Rossi is playing a fortune teller, talking to Shannon Elizabeth and her friend. And, uh, and then we cut, right? And then we get to Jesse Eisenberg working at his job. He's kind of a lovable loser. And then uh, Jesse Eisenberg <laughs> playing that role. Always. What? Oh. Yes, very animated. And then could you uh, imagine him podcasting? Jesus. <laughs> That'd be uh, it'd be be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, so Joshua Jackson is set up kind of this. It's called Tinsel, and it's this walkable, uh, interactive horror exhibit. The sort of things you guys have done out in LA. You know what I mean? Like it's sort of immerse the immersive experience as they call it in the business. Christina Ricci well, trying to be her, trying to be his love interest. And so she goes to pick up her, her brother who is Jesse Eisenberg. And a, along the way they're involved in a car crash and, uh, they get down, uh, to the other car that was involved and, uh, it's upside down, and Shannon Elizabeth is in the car who was just talking to the fortune teller, and they're like trying to get her out and, and calm her down. Star Maya was with her, that the fortune teller as well. That's that right. Was another good sign. That's right. <laughs> Which Maya, I forget who she replaced, but she replaced a, a main character. That oh wow. And Shannon Elizabeth's worst acting ever. <laughs> Oh, wow. which is weird because she's usually so good. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, oh, we can debate what her worst acting is. Uh, and then as they're trying to calm her down and chill her out before emergency crews come, a werewolf snatches her ass right out of her car. And I'm like, oh, hey, that's entertaining. And the siblings are injured in the whole uh, exchange. And then they start, well, they start going through changes as they get older. <laughs> And things are happening to their bodies that they weren't ready Jesse for. Jesse Eisenberg's character becomes Tobey Maguire in Spider-Man <laughs> 3 when the symbiote gets him. He starts dancing down the street and pointing at people. He's joining the wrestling team. Yeah, so, was that a Teen Wolf, Wolf movie? That was Joy, Teen Wolf joins boxing. the high school wrestling team and is doing WWE moves. <laughs> yeah. And everybody's going apeshit for it. He just flipped. That didn't seem weird. So there is the setup. Does anyone have anything to say at this point? Uh, I really do like the attack at the opening there with the, the at the car wreck. Yes, yeah, that's always what I think. It's in. It's a movie. very intense, violent. I like attack. I like yeah, it. Sets the like tone, but honestly, one that, that doesn't really live up to. No, they don't live up out. to it afterwards. But you know, to let listeners know, I mean, they chuck the beautiful Shannon Elizabeth in half and they throw that half of the corpse right back so up if, and she's crawling on the ground and it's pretty gruesome looking. Yeah. And you think, okay, we got something cool on our hands, but they don't really have Would you say the werewolf again. was then eating her butt? <laughs> Where butt? Where butt? So uh, I think that's one of the original things that was Wolf left in the movie uh, because the original plot is that it's three people that are all um, basically infected and dealing with the... Uh, so I don't know that Shannon Elizabeth probably died in probably every version, but 
Um, Richie and Eisenberg were not brother and sister. Um, and basically it was like three strangers and all that, like the car accident was part of it. And then the werewolf attack. And I think from there, cause I, if you notice Maya's not, which makes zero sense, they left together. She's not in the car. Are you the A and E biographer? I am A and E biographer. <laughs> um, Keep going. I would love to trash this movie. <laughs> so uh, again, uh, the, the most of the things I've read is that obviously it's definitely um, if you can make an unrated uh, hard R version. So making it PG thirteen is not a good choice. So that's number one. Um, number two. Uh, not that I would be a fan that he had more roles, but it, it is weird that Scott Bayo, you see him like once in the movie, but it is, it, I think it had more of a lost boys feel because I think that's the big reveal is that he's actually the, the, the werewolf that's doing everything. And in real life, he's the werewolf that's doing everything. Okay, like, like an in charge. Okay, <laughs> I, I almost turned this movie off when I saw Scott Bayo's name come up in the opening <laughs> credits. How dare you! Almost turned the commentary on. <laughs> wah wah wah! <laughs> <laughs> There's a special commentary with him, Dean Kane, and Christy Swanson. If you want to tune oh, into boy. that, yeah. And, but they, uh, what's really good is when they get Kevin Sorbo on there too. <laughs> So we get this. bring it back in. Uh, we get this scene that's in a parking garage with an elevator, and it showcases simultaneously some of the good practical effects of the film and some of the lackluster CGI of the film. When it's running across the cars, yeah. And so this is, I think, this is again now that I'm learning about all this cursed history of the film, like. This is probably the schizophrenia of why the film can't figure out what it is. Yeah. Um, because the practical effects were really enjoyable, but then they would just muddle it with CGI. Yeah, they you, don't. Because you had to. They don't them. mesh. Yeah. They, right. they The effects don't mesh, and I think that's my problem with, with the effects. I love that it's a bipedal werewolf. Mm -hmm. And I love I love the structure like the of the legs. for boys so. and girls, too. Well, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you listening at home, and Todd, <laughs> bipedal means walks on two legs. <laughs> Um, that's two episodes in a row. Is that, <laughs> Hopefully we can shoot for three. That's not a leg. <laughs> uh, you know what? I think we've talked about this. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, the, the wrestling scene was one that I had noted that's, here. That's a douchey scene. Um, that hurts the film. Now, as, a werewolf, as werewolf purists sitting at this table, how do you feel about the idea that... So, uh Jesse Eisenberg's dog bites him because the dog senses that he's a werewolf, and then his dog becomes a werewolf. Whack. <laughs> I had a feeling I knew that was coming. At this point, why? Why not? <laughs> I liked little. I liked aspects like I liked the the pentagram on the hand. Mm -hmm. I liked that it wasn't a full on pentagram, but there were those Marks. those holes. That, yeah. Almost like a stigmata mm -hmm. on the hand, so a it wasn't wolf mata, if you will. <laughs> if you will. Uh, I like that end of it. I, I usually, I'm not really going to argue if you set a movie in front of me where for 90 minutes I got to look at Christina Ricci. That's usually not going to be a problem. Um, I, I think my problem with this movie is, and I don't dislike this movie. I just, it's kind of average for me. 
I could watch it again or I couldn't. It wouldn't bother me. I think my problem with it is, is it does smack a lot to me of the Scream movies. I think the flavor is well, very I, yeah. similar. I think they probably made Williams and Williams yeah. lean into it. It's It certainly could have been darker. And I would have enjoyed it being a bit darker. Instead, it came off like another teen horror movie. And, you know, maybe that's a 43-year-old man is not the market they're aiming towards. And maybe sure. well, maybe I, mean, I see it yeah. at a different time of my life. I'd have felt differently yeah, you about it. see this it. when you're 14, when she gets thrown up over that car. Oh, and yeah. That's yeah. sticking with you for years. Yeah. And, and, again, I don't dislike this movie. I don't think it's a bad movie. But I it, it hits me dead in the mediocre zone. Same. Mm-hmm. I find it more a curiosity for completionist kind of concepts of like werewolf movies, Wes Craven. It's going to pop up on my radar again down the line when I'm marathoning one or the other. It's it's not a taxing watch. It's not – I've certainly watched a lot worse for yeah. this podcast. So what's, it's enjoyable. What's the actress's name that's in everything? She was in Arrested Development. Judy Greer. I'm so tired of seeing her in things, even retroactively. Now. Like <laughs> when I see her and think she was, it's like, oh god, her again. Like that was my, one of my problems with the new Halloween movie. That's what I say was when Halloween she, kills when she when she showed up in it. It took kind of took me out of the movie a little bit because Jamie Lee is Jamie Lee Curtis, but I could, she's Laurie Strode first for me. Yeah. When I see this woman show, she's everything I've seen You're her like, in. Oh, that's Kitty from her. Yeah, it's an actress. You know, it kind of took me out of it, but whatever. So we go on to find out that, um, you know, we, we were sure that Christina Ricci and Jesse Eisenberg were probably werewolves, but then we're like, well, who's the other one? And we start to learn that Josh Jackson. Yeah, it's like, who wrote Dawson's Creek? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to Josh Jackson to find out he's a werewolf, but then there's another one. We're like, who could be the other werewolf? Turns out, Joni, played by Judy Greer. Do you think they named her character? Joni she got uh, Chachi was in it. She got werewolf AIDS. Yeah, Joni and Chachi. She's with him. And we get a a, a little bit of a CGI really transformation that. there. <sighs> Boy, like that was better than Howling sequels, but it was not a great CGI transformation scene. Now, here comes the best part of the film that I know Wilson's dad would agree with. It's that the cops show up and they don't know who to trust, who to believe, and they're like, no, 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 it's this werewolf, and it's this this chick Joni, and she's got a bony ass and fat thighs and bad skin and werewolf that's that's what sets her off. Bitchy comments. Jumps out. That is funny. Flips them the bird in werewolf costume and says, Liar! <laughs> and then the cops blow her away. And that's usually, I think, a good <laughs> point to wonder what the original script was. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say I don't love that scene because I do. I send that gift to you guys regularly. <laughs> the werewolf flipping you off. Uh and I, I didn't know Mears played the werewolf. That's really cool. Um, Rick Mears, the race car driver. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, we find out Josh Jackson is the original. We got to kill him so that we can end the curse. We do. There we go. You know what? At least the fight wasn't Antonio Banderas versus <laughs> Anthony Hopkins at the end of Wolfman. <laughs> oh, you mean WWE Hell in a Cell? Yeah. Between awful. two Wolfmen? So bad. Yeah. Ruined that movie. Ruined it. It was good until then. 
Which so I, I wonder if they even left a. Can I do a Midwest Monsters cut of that movie? If they if they even <laughs> um, besides the the original script and all the different cuts, I wonder if they would have not made it because because even the unrated cut, I don't think that's like well. Here's the few scenes that we cut. Um, there's still a lot of tampering, and then. It's a $40 million production because of all the reshoots and stuff, not because of the effects. And I think that's where the CGI werewolves came in. So had they not done all that, I think it would have been more practical effects. I think that could have saved the movie. Um, I think the best write-up, though, on if you want to read about it is Bloody Disgusting because they talk about all the different cuts. And, I would love to learn um, about that. I don't remember the movie Pulse, the remake of Pulse, but I know that, that did, this movie kept Wes Craven from his – he was stuck on this movie for four years. So the movies he had lined up, he did not get to get Four to work years. on. That's insane for this movie. Yeah. Yes, wow, that's how trouble it was. <clears throat> so I want to say at the end of the day, that rhymed <laughs> that I am a poet and I didn't know it. Um, but I I do strangely <laughs> get a kick out of this movie. I don't love it. I'm not you know trying to watch it every year, but I. I think it's fun enough. I'm not mad at it at all. Yeah. There's worse. But the, it's also fair to be rough on it because sure. of what is behind it. Like Wes Craven, the, the cast, the money. This is an inexcusable final result. But with that said, it's entertaining enough. Yeah. yeah. But just the idea of Wes Craven teaming up with him again to do a good, big, and as they described it, splashy werewolf film. It's heartbreaking. To think <laughs> it goes about. from splashy to splotchy. <laughs> from splashy to trashy. <laughs> yeah. Poop splash. All right. So that has been <laughs> cursed. Ooh. Round and third and heading home. Hot toddy. What was your film? Unhinged 2020, directed by Derek Borte, uh, written by Carl Ellsworth. Uh, who also did Disturbia, Red Eye, and Last House on the Left, um, starring Russell Crowe, Karen Pistorius, Gabriel Bateman, uh, and Jimmy Simpson. Mm-hmm. And this was like the first, I think one of the first movies that actually opened up nationwide in theaters from the pandemic. And I think it probably profited off of no movies being out because... I this is I think one either I watched this or the the uh, X Men movie can't remember which one I watched first but I was like well I don't you want to see this but uh, it's starting at the showtime and I need a movie so um, I'd seen a few of the trailers and thought it looked okay it, this is not what I expected it to be and as soon as it took off um, if I'm being honest the first twenty minutes was still kind of like oh you know it's it's going to be this and I think they showed early on. Um, I don't know if they made it a little bit more hardcore because right now I feel like a lot of people can probably get down with this guy and be like, Oh my God, he's my hero. But I think early on they were like, Nope, this guy's like, he's cause, cause I kind of expected him to chase people around. I didn't expect him to be a full on like a, like murder. So if you don't mind, I'd like to jump in here. And I would like to say that I did not enjoy this movie <laughs> and it's not because it's not a good movie. It's because I had a 90-minute panic attack watching this thing. <laughs> this, is, this is stressful. This, this is why I like my movies with a little bit of fantasy mixed in, a little bit of sci-fi, a little bit of something to remove me from reality. Can I? Because this was not removed from reality. 
a lot of this was <laughs> so real and could happen. Uh, yeah, ninety minute stress fest for me, and I will not ever. Watch You're it welcome. Again. Can I be? Can I be a hundred percent honest? It's been hard to like. I, I wanted to rewatch this movie since I saw it in the theater, and I'm like, Oof. and then I picked it. And then I watched this last because it was like, man, can I watch my own movie? Because I already knew how stressful it is. And then to add to it, you add a red hat to this dude, and this dude is my fear of the last four years. <laughs> I'm being 100%. Uh, and it is a stressful movie. I didn't expect it to be as um, – it's not the movie I expected. And, and I watched – watching it, I think there might have been two or three other people in the movie. I think everybody was just like it – was, it was stressful. Fuck yeah, it was. <laughs> So you're welcome. <laughs> um, I was not looking forward to this movie. It just <laughs> it just looked like a cheesy Lifetime movie to me. And this movie is way more suspenseful and jarring than it should be. <laughs> I didn't I didn't expect it to be. <laughs> yeah. I also realized watching this that what the difference of thriller and horror movies are is that thrillers don't have any humor. That's the difference. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I like. Damn, this movie is fucked up. It, it, it goes hard. <laughs> yes, it does. And so I was like, kudos to Toddy. I just thought this was going to be some sappy nerd movie. When when you see Russell Crowe and David Koresh glasses, you're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> oh, and it's about cheeseburger. David it's Koresh. about it's about road rage. <laughs> yeah, like oh, and then you watch it, you're like, fuck this. Yeah. Um, I'm driving polite as fuck to people. No, you go. No, you go. I will say I didn't need this movie to teach me that lesson. I, years ago, I, I chilled out on honking and getting mad when I'm driving. It just you see it. It's like every once in a while, a story will get through to you in the news, and I can just remember hearing or reading something where somebody literally followed him around the corner and shot him to death over some road rage incident. And I thought I'm gonna quit even honking at people. Yeah, I'm just gonna let things go, and I have for years. Um, and so I. What's funny is, is I got as much anxiety with their initial interaction of her honking and being rude. I was just like, oh, why are you doing that? It's just, Jesus. Just don't do that. Um, but yeah, I, the reviews on this were pretty brutal. Um, I thought that it was exactly what I thought it would be. Hmm. No better, no worse. I thought the, the surprises, which we'll get into, I thought the horror elements were a little bit heavier and at times gorier than I expected. For sure. Um, and I thought that the suspense, especially in the first half of the film, was executed perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, I thought, well, we'll get into it. Yeah. So uh, I just want to say real quick to I preface was say, this. I was ready to... Go ahead. Yeah, to preface it real quick, talking about honking at <laughs> you people. Fight. I was just going to – hold on. I was, was going <laughs> to <laughs> so, – You uh, cut me off. <laughs> so – uh, I'd never been a big city driver until I went to graduate school out in Berkeley. And so I would drive around in the Bay and I mean, like honking's like a way of life, sure. right? <laughs> so I'm back here and I've got, uh, I've got my wife and I've got Todd and I've got Ryan Bones with me and we're in Muncie and someone's sitting at a green light, not going, they're on their phone, you know, and I give them a little courtesy tap and they go and Todd and Bones like, what are you doing? <laughs> You just ruined that person's whole week. And I'm like, 
It's kind of true. In the Midwest, people aren't used to getting honked at. But yeah, I'm like, we'll sit and wave each other at a four-way stop for 20 minutes before somebody goes. <laughs> but after you know, driving around the bay, it's like, pay attention, pay attention, honk, honk, oh, honk, yeah. honk. You know, it's, it's like definitely different. It's a areas. different culture, you know. And so I just come here, and I'm like, I didn't like lay on the horn. I'm just like, oh, courtesy tap, you know, as Russell Crowe explains, you know, there's a difference. You I like know? our friend uh, Joe Barker and I were once walking down a sidewalk in Philadelphia, not even near a crosswalk, and a car drove by, honked, and screamed, fuck you still don't know to this day <laughs> why it's because you're with barker i guess but yeah it's definitely so, a, a big change when you get back into so the I, I really appreciate how alarmed todd and rybones were like you can't do that <laughs> this is this is the midwest man you're gonna ruin their week uh there's also a lot more shotgun racks in the back of the trucks here in the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. so Please, without any further ado. So, uh, Unhinged. Uh, so, actually, I had to look it up because I tried to think if uh, Russell Crowe's character's name is the like the man. Uh, his name's never mentioned, but uh, our film opens with uh, Russell Crowe, who definitely, uh, I guess, was making a film because he packed on some weight. <laughs> um, and, uh, again, I, I, everything you guys said is exactly what I, the movie I thought I went into. Uh, the movie opens with a very upset man and he's, um, waiting outside of a house and he, um, takes off his wedding ring, throws it, goes in the house. And I think this is where things turn for me because I was not expecting it, but takes a hammer, um, to his, uh, this would be his, I, I, I'm assuming ex-wife or wife, um, and her, her new lover, um, takes a hammer to both of them and then burns the house and um, very calmly drives off. Um, and then we go to our, uh, our main character, um, Rachel and her son, Kyle and uh, Rachel's having a horrible day trying to get her son to school. And uh, that's when our two characters meet and basically setting at a light, they're late and he's not moving. She honks her horn. And then, um, I mean, I, I, I I kind of get both situations, but um, he rolls up on Rachel wanting her to apologize. And I think this is her breaking point of that. She's had enough too. And yeah, uh, because she doesn't apologize. He actually um, just kind of takes it upon himself that she's going to regret this. So, um, you know, she drops her son off to school and um, Andy is a friend and her uh, diverse divorce attorney. And, um, he ends up meeting her at the restaurant and she's having all this bad stuff happen. I guess the gas station scene had happened too. So I think that's, I think just the first few scenes set the movie's tone because you didn't know. So they, they didn't meet at the restaurant. They were supposed to. Yeah. They were supposed to meet at the restaurant. She's at a gas station where he's followed her. Um, takes her phone, takes her phone. One of the customers walks out. He runs over the customer and kills yeah. him. Customer coming out, trying to have her back, <laughs> help her out. Um, has her phone meets uh, her friend at the restaurant and has the friend call her where he then takes a butter knife, <laughs> a butter <laughs> knife. Yeah. And in front of the entire restaurant murders him in front of everybody. And that's, that's the, basically the first 20 minutes of the film. And so everything takes off from there. Um, again, I, I kind of saw the previews I had heard. I don't, I don't always go by critic reaction, but I had seen people um, that were going to the theater to see this said they enjoyed it. Um, man, and at that point, it already started stressing me out, and then 
I mean, this guy was just like nonstop. It kind of reminded me of a lot of old retro um, thrillers, like like kind of like Duel and um, Breakdown with Kurt Russell and, and Falling Down without. Uh, did you, without well, Falling Down, but but they make sure that I think because of the first few things that he does, they make sure that like there's still some redeeming things of some of these movies you can watch. I think they made sure early on that you. It's, you're not going to relate to Russell Crowe. You don't like Russell Crowe. Did you find it comforting that they at least uh, set you apart from reality with the movie and that you know that a middle-aged, middle-class white man would never freak out like this? <laughs> <laughs> at least in this country. Yeah. Well, what's interesting to me, so uh, great setup there. Like, like this dude is paused at a traffic light because he just murdered his ex-wife and her lover. <laughs> And as you said, she has had a shit morning too. Like she's having problems with her, her divorce lawsuit. Uh, she's already like late getting her kid to school. Like she's having a hard time. And this, I mean, this is the narrative that sets everything into motion and that like she honks at him because she legit has shit. She has to do. He's distracted at the stoplight because he fucking murdered <laughs> his ex wife. And all of a sudden, this lady has the problem. You know what I'm saying? Right. Oh, you're not the problem. Uh, ex-wife murderer. No, you're going to need to make sure that this lady who's just honestly trying to get by has a bad day because she honked at you. You're right. You've got no sympathy for this guy from the very beginning. And you know, he's a monster. And that honestly leads to the terror. Yeah, it also makes come. him so much more threatening because you know that he's flipped to the sinister and there's no coming back. Yeah. He knows that this is this is it. Yeah. So he wants to be the moral justifier. Right. <laughs> like, how dare you honk at me? Don't you know that there's a difference between a, a courtesy tap and laying on it, you know? And it's like, man, fuck this guy right from the very beginning. He's going to be a monster. Yeah. And again, societally, as we talk about, that's the problem we deal with now that no one wants to see anybody else's problems. Right. It's, it's all about me, not we. Yep. Exactly. Well, cause he even, uh, when he finds out that her friends, a divorce attorney, because of course oh, yeah. there's right. nothing wrong right. with the, the, the guy, it's all her. And, and cause he even makes a point early on of sending all her money to her ex. And, uh, Again, like at, at this point, uh, I think right before, I think he does the friend and then he makes her choose who his next victim is. Yeah. And she says herself, and then I think she picks the lady that fired the, her. The lady that fired but, her that morning. But she did call, like, cause that, that was probably smart because she was able to call the police and the police inter intervene. And he already knew that. And the next thing you know, I didn't even know she has a brother. And then he's on to kill the brother. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think after the the scene with the brother and the girlfriend, that's when I was like, "Man, he's probably going to kill her kid, kill her." That scene is rough. Makes the brother stab his fiance, Ooh. and then like I don't like any scene where MF is about to get gasoline or lighter fluid thrown on him. Really? And lit up. <laughs> yeah, those, those scenes are extra bothersome yeah. to me. Like if a guy cut another guy's ear off, and he <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> yeah, didn't turn you on. Fun. Nope. <laughs> well, here we are, stuck in the middle with you. <laughs> so yeah, he uh, 
Well, you think he'll, uh, he sets the brother on fire, a cop shows up. And I think that's the thing, too, is every time something's set up to stop him, he just keeps going. Well, yeah, it's like, is this motherfucker Jason Voorhees? Like, what the <laughs> fuck kind is of, going on here? It almost plays him like Jason Voorhees. Yeah, it is. Right. Um, I like at one point when he lectures her that he got shot in the shoulder. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry things inconvenienced you today. <laughs> Do you know what kind of day I've had? I've been shot. Because I've been Which chasing again, you all day. Goes back to the same old shit. I'm the victim. Yes, always, absolutely. It's like, dude, you are wreaking carnage everywhere you go right now. You are the problem. Yeah, because there's even there's even some scenes which, uh, again, like uh, I give this movie props too because um, it was practical. So the highway scenes, like you, every time you think they're safe, they're trying to flag down a cop, and the cop gets smoked by a semi. That. Out of the entire movie with that. I don't do this very often anymore. I mean, I've been watching movies my whole life a lot. Very seldom do I say something out loud. And I did with that. When that cop gets smoked by the truck driving through it, I literally went, oh, my God. <laughs> yep, that I couldn't was believe that it. That threw me off. And then the lady on her phone, you know she's going to get it. I'm not expecting her car to flip and him to, like, just cause this, like, huge fucking crash. Uh yeah, I, this again. Uh, Russell Crowe, I like a lot of his early movies. I don't, I can't think of the last movie I'd really enjoyed him in. Um, he's playing a character that I definitely wouldn't like, um, even without murdering his wife. Um, Which is weird because they say that Russell Crowe is a really even killed. I was going to say, I wonder <laughs> what the experience honestly was like for him. But yeah, With even somebody uh, who's been in the public eye for losing his temper over and over again. So then we uh, playing a worse version. <laughs> Yeah. Of, of what you're already known for yeah. in your past. It's kind of odd. So then we get to... Uh, Alan Baldwin's going to be the sequel. <laughs> probably. Uh, then we kind of get to the, the third act, which is that um, she gets her son out of school, uh, which that was even stressful because they didn't want to give her a son. And um, she's just trying to think of something that they can get, uh, um, I guess, a better playing ground. So they go to her mom's house. Which goes back to the kids' video game strategy from earlier in the film. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I don't know. They were able to like lose him for a while. The kid goes in and hides. And then, um, at first viewing, I kind of thought she was just dumb as shit. Because I'm like, man, he didn't even know where you were. And now he can see your car. But man, she comes out and smokes him. <laughs> and then, uh, like, even up to the... I mean, it's brutal. Like, he, he messes her up, messes the kid up. <laughs> um, and I think the only probably, like one-liner of the whole movie is when he told her to, you know, to, to kind of tap the horn and uh, she ends up stabbing him in the, the eye with a pair of scissors. And she ends up saying something about tap this and just kicks the scissors through his skull. Trick or treat. <laughs> <laughs> Which it is a gruesome scene. Yeah. Looks pretty cool. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a callback. She's like, Oh, where are my scissors? From candy the very cane scissors. I want to talk to Candy Cane. Are <laughs> you looking for Candy Cane, bitch? <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. Uh, Wire reviewed it and said, for a film spin on the phone, almost entirely on the phone, Russell Crowe it certainly dials it in. <laughs> I don't agree. I don't think he's that bad. No. Um, my only complaint with this movie is that at a certain point, and I know you guys already touched on this, he like becomes untouchable. Yes. Like this whole city would be locked down on oh, his yeah. ass. Yeah. Yeah. By after there, by there's the roadblocks, there's right. all kinds of shit. But that's okay. You spend 
a little bit of the belief for this stuff. Yeah. If this were the 70s, they'd be beating him up like Richard Ramirez. <laughs> <in> the <laughs> uh, there you go. So it's like, I think for anybody listening, if they decide to check this out, you need to understand about halfway through this movie, you need to be willing to just enjoy it and not yeah. scrutinize because it's still a pretty grounded movie, but it does get a little, a little outlandish that this guy who doesn't appear to me to be a tech wizard is mm-hmm. suddenly while operating a vehicle, tracking down people all over the city right. and researching on the go. But that's okay. It's uh, it stayed much more entertaining than I expected to. Usually movies like this fall apart about halfway through. Yep. And this stayed good. Yeah. Criminally entertaining. Yep. <laughs> this was not – this is better than it should have been. Well, I didn't, I, didn't, picnics, I would have never watched it. I didn't oh, expect – uh, I definitely didn't expect any of the horror elements. The go- I didn't expect it to be gory. Mm-hmm. I just kind of expected it to be kind of like cat and mouse. He's chasing her. Like, I expected none of this movie. Good times. That means we're canceled. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, wrapping up a fascinating Certainly monster very. match. <laughs> yes, very, very, very. I am one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I have been joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Benny, Hot Toddy. Stay scary. <laughs> <laughs>